Good morning. On Wednesday, a decision by Germany to send leopard tanks to the Ukrainian army, with the US following suit along with Poland, Finland and Norway. The view from Ukraine seemed to be relief and perhaps exhaustion. On Wednesday's drive time, Ukrainian MP Ina Sovson. I actually cried last night when I read the, the news because uh, I checked uh, my own Twitter account and I, I read that I actually the first time I mentioned leopards and that Germany has them and they can provide them to Ukraine was in June. So half a year ago, that is when Ukraine started asking for those tanks unofficially. But then, of course, with the pressure growing and, and with Ukrainian army proving that uh, they are skillful enough to use the, the more, more uh, technological weapons like those tanks, uh, after all, Germany did take this decision. So we are extremely excited. We understand that it will still take a while for our soldiers to learn how to operate them. But that is definitely a breakthrough for us, which allows us to plan the, the, the campaigns on, on liberating the territories which are occupied now. However, the decision was described by Russia's ambassador to Germany as extremely dangerous and one that takes the conflict to a new level of confrontation. With a view from Berlin, Kate Connolly of The Guardian with Claire. There's huge fear in amongst Germans that, you know, this could escalate, that Germany would be seen as the aggressor. Um, and as we've just heard, Germany has provided an awful lot of equipment so far, but this has been carried out. It, as, 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 we, as we heard, there's not been great adverts about it that this has happened because domestically it's can, it, it goes down uh, badly with some sectors of the, of the electorate. And I mean, we've had criticism this morning, kind of expected criticism from Sarah Wagenknecht of the far left who said it's madness that could end in catastrophe. The far right AFD say the move threatens dragging Germany directly into the war. And of, of Schultz's own SPD, you know, they're quite a pacifist party. Ralph Stegen from that party saying, what will come next? We are now delivering back battle tanks. Will we next deliver fighter jets, ships? Um, you know, are we going to be talking about sending troops at some point? And all of this filters down and the public you know, take this very seriously and uh, and most people on the street have an opinion on this. Also on the line, Donika Obakon, Professor of Politics at DCU. Donika, what do you say to that, those fears that have been expressed, triggering an escalation from Russia towards Germany for making this decision? How big is that risk? Throughout this conflict, every type of help that's been offered to Ukraine has followed threats from Russia that any help at all towards Ukraine would 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 be a provocation and would trigger some escalation. So this is a bluff that has been called many times. But there is a fear, obviously, in Germany, and not only uh, of of some kind of you might say sleepwalking into a direct conflict uh, with 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 Russia. But that's not a fear that's shared by you might say Russia's nearest neighbours, uh, Estonia, Poland, Latvia. Those you might argue have the most to lose in any such conflagration and and, and that's why as I said they've been quite critical of, of German resistance to, to, to support Ukraine militarily. It's worth pointing out as well that uh, you know because we sometimes focus on German pacifism as if it's if it's so deeply ingrained that they cannot provide any military assistance to anybody but Germany has a huge defense industry uh, that has very profitably exported lethal equipment to many parts of the world which are unstable, volatile and indeed not democratic at the Middle East, for example. So many have argued that if it's willing to do that, uh, 10 billion uh, in German military exports last year, as I said, for profit, uh, why can't they pro bono defend a European democracy uh, very close to its its borders? However, 
on Drive Time. Another professor, but a very different point of view. This is Geoffrey Roberts, Emeritus Professor of History at UCC. It started with Cormac asking the professor for his reaction to the Pledge of Tanks. The Ukrainians are very, very happy with these Western decisions. And the reason they're very, very happy with Western decisions is because they're desperate, yeah? What's happening in, uh, on the battlefront is that the war is turning uh, against, against Ukraine. The Russians are um, gaining more, more territory. The Russians are digging in their defence. Uh, their armed forces are, 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 are expanding. In his view, the Russians are winning this war. Is it the correct decision by Germany and the US, in your opinion, to send those uh, tanks if they are desperate to defend their country? Well, uh, the the, the thing is, the question you need to ask is, is it going to make any fundamental difference to the strategic situation in Ukraine? And the answer to that question, I fear, is no. The difference it's going to make is it's going to prolong the war. And the longer the war goes on, the more the more people that Ukraine is going to lose, the more damages it's going to suffer, the worse it is when, when we get to some kind of... So, sorry, what is the alternative then? What, what is the alternative? And surely prolonging the war means prolonging the defence of the sovereign country that has been attacked or in an unprovoked fashion, well, and that's well, a good thing. Well, the, what, <laughs> the West is, is, is prolonging the war not by supplying scrim, not just for for Ukraine's sake, but for its own sake as well. You know, it's prolonging its proxy war with Russia. The aim being Sorry, to... hang on a second. What do you mean it's proxy war with Russia? It is Russia that started the war, unprovoked. Uh, 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 absolutely. And the West has uh, involved itself to such an extent in the war that it's, it's reasonable and legitimate to call it uh, a, a proxy war. So uh, the isn't West, it reasonable... The West, sorry, hang on, sorry, hang on a second here. Isn't it reasonable, Professor... For Ukraine, having been uh, attacked in an unprovoked uh, fashion, its sovereignty attacked, its territory attacked, isn't it reasonable for them to defend themselves with whatever weaponry they can get their hands on? And isn't it also reasonable for the West to supply them with weapons in in that situation? Absolutely, it's reasonable for them to do that. But both the Ukrainians and the West need to be realistic about where this is heading. And at the moment, where this is heading is for Ukrainians' military defeat. Says uh, who? And, and, a, and, a much, and, a, and a much worse outcome that might be possible. I mean, so, in, question, in, sorry, in whose opinion? You ask me a question, please. Can I just ask you ask no, me a question? No, sorry. What's, what's the alternative? Before, you when, me, when you, when you make a judgment like that, you have to back it up. So what is the basis of that judgment? Based that judgment is actually what is happening in Ukraine at the moment in terms of the the Russian advances. And as he told Cormac, it was time to negotiate peace. Prompting this from Cormac. That sounds like peace in our time. It's not about appeasement, it's about being realistic. It's about being realistic, yeah. That the Ukrainians uh, had the opportunity to end this war six six months ago, and they could have ended it and with quite minimal territorial territorial losses. But they decided to fight on. They decided to fight on because they were under pressure from Western governments to continue with the war. And, and the result of that has been hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian uh, casualties, uh, territor- more territorial losses uh, and huge devastation. I cannot understand how a professor of history, yeah. uh, knowing your history as you do, uh, would suggest such a compromise, ceding of territory, g- given th- the situation that happened a year ago, an attack on a sovereign country, unprovoked, 
bombing residential buildings as Russia did in a flagrant contravention of the Geneva Convention, then lying about it, slaughtering civilians as they did in Bucha and Mariupol, and then lying about it to the world. Surely defence is the only option here. As a history professor, I can tell you that war is the worst possible human phenomenon. Everything has so to tell be done. Russia to get out. Then, and, is the let me finish. Answer. Everything has to be done to avoid war, and when wars occur, to bring them to an end. As a history professor, I can tell you that you know, wars end ba- often end badly for, for for one side. And as a history professor, all my knowledge of history tells me this war is going to end very badly for Ukraine. So the sooner this war comes to an end, the sooner the West starts to actually work towards some kind of ceasefire and peace settlement, the better it will be for Ukraine. What I want to see, I want to see Ukraine survive as an independent sovereign state. The, the policy that's being pursued by the West, this escalation policy, is actually leading in the direction of the complete destruction can, of, can of, of you, Ukraine. Can, can I... And any comparison to the Nazi regime? Not one he will countenance. Russia is not Nazi Germany. Uh, Putin is not Hitler. As it happens, the territories that Ukraine wow. would likely lose because of this war, right, may, before the war, was mainly inhabited by people who uh, identify Russia, who are pro-Russians. Well, they've been likened to Nazis by various world leaders and organisations and human rights organisations worldwide. I'm an expert on Russia, the Soviet Union, Stalin and Hitler, the Second World War, appeasement, and I can tell you with my authority as a historian that those world leaders are wrong. And eminent historians disagree, I know, as well. But uh, we'll leave it there. Well, I'm an eminent historian. I'm giving you my point of view. Uh, I understand. Geoffrey Roberts, Emeritus Professor of History. From Wednesday's Drive Time. Another story making news this week and not unrelated. There is no room at the inn. As flagged last week by Minister Roderick O'Gorman, the City West Transit Hub is now full and adults arriving in Ireland seeking international protection will not be offered state-provided accommodation. On Wednesday's Morning Ireland, reporter Laura Fletcher brought us this clip of a man who'd just come to the country seeking asylum. I went inside and they collected my name, my details and they gave me a blue card and told me they don't have accommodation that I should look for where to stay. They gave me 20 euro in a cart, a black cart, that I should go to a location and have my shower and eat. Then I should look for where to stay. Do you know what you're going to do? Where are you going to stay? No, I don't have anybody here. I don't know where to stay. Well, I don't know what to do. Uh, I'm just kind of lost and I'm feeling cold outside. Yeah, that's it. Are you worried about maybe sleeping on the street or? Uh, I've been thinking about it, but I don't know where to sleep on the streets. Avoid getting robbed and rest. Yeah. So as was said, it is a voucher for 20 euro and put your name down on a waiting list. And it should be noted that those arriving with children will be accommodated, as will those coming from Ukraine. On drive time, Cormac put this to Nick Henderson, Chief Executive of the Irish Refugee Council. There's a distinction being drawn as well, isn't there? Ukrainian arrivals will continue to get uh, beds and accommodation. Why is there that distinction, uh, do you know? And is that acceptable in your opinion? 
it all flows uh, as we understand it from accommodation providers who would prefer or will state that they will only accommodate refugees from Ukraine and won't accommodate international protection applicants. Uh, I think that speaks for itself ultimately. Uh, and I think in a situation like this, where one group of people who are fleeing uh, war and persecution are street homeless and another group of people who are fleeing the same circumstances are being provided accommodation. Uh, and the only distinction is by virtue of their nationality. That's frankly unacceptable. Is it discrimination? I think it probably is, yeah. So, and I, so, think that, yeah, I think the accommodation providers who make that distinction should reflect on that. And I think it's incumbent on government as well to be more direct uh, in, in when engaging with accommodation providers and in, in calling out when they choose only to provide accommodation to, refu to refugees from Ukraine. And yesterday, the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission said our failure to provide accommodation puts Ireland in breach of its international obligations. Nevertheless, with an average of 310 protection applicants arriving here each week, it's possible we could see hundreds of men and women rough sleeping in the coming weeks. On the News at One, Mike Allen, Advocacy Director of Focus Ireland. It's extraordinary that we are here um, uh, this week with the place closed and no alternative in place. It's important in, in looking at what the Homeless Executive has said is that the way that Ireland has responded to the refugee crisis has been very strong. So we have two separate pillars. There's a homeless and housing sector where, where we work and the mm -hmm. refugees and the, the asylum seekers and they're separate. So there's no question that asylum seekers get any advance in terms of social housing and there's nobody who loses an emergency homeless bed because of the refugee crisis. They, they, they've been separate up to now. Mm -hmm. And that's really been important in terms of establishing the fairness of it and, 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 and um, achieving our commitments to international, our international obligations without disadvantaging people who are already uh, disadvantaged. Um, but what's happened here is despite the incredible amount of work, and you have to acknowledge this, that the, the Department of Children and IPAS have done accommodating over 70,000 people, um, they've reached the end of their tether. The problem here would, is that this will turn into a problem that homeless services need to solve. It's not. It is a problem that the, the, at cabinet, all government level uh, needs, to, needs to resolve. And all of that before yesterday's report from the Department of Housing with the latest homelessness figures. More than 11,600 people, including almost 3,500 children. A record high in numbers for the sixth consecutive month. Now, just before we finish this little bit, lest you think we had forgotten, if last week was all about Pascal and those posters, this week, in the interests of balance, it is the turn of Sinn Féin and undeclared expenses for six events at five venues during the 2016 election. An error, they say, and one immediately rectified. However, the spat, scrap quota, kind of low. A certain sheepishness in the air, perhaps? Harry McGee of the Irish Times joined Claire. Has the steam gone out of it now, Harry? It has. It was almost like looking at a balloon <laughs> flattening very slowly yesterday. Uh, for over a week, we had fevered debate about Pascal Donoghue and Michael Stone and what work had been done and what, what hadn't been done. And then after the high drama of his statement on Tuesday, it was very, very anticlimactic yesterday. Uh, Pascal Donoghue's case wasn't mentioned at all during the course of debate in the uh, Doyle, and all of the opposition parties seem to have gone 
quiet uh, on it. So to me, it seems that this particular uh, controversy is now at an end or coming very close uh, to an end. Mm -hmm. I, I think perhaps um, Sinn Féin's admission yesterday in relation to its own omissions might have softened its cough a little bit in relation to its strategy on Pascal Donoghue, because while they are different in some senses, uh, they do fall, as I would argue, within the uh, same category. So I think for the moment, uh, that particular controversy has played out. Phew. But in the dark of night, is every party waking up a screaming check and double check that ledger? Here is Green Party TD Mark Okasi on Late Debate with Calm. Was there any check going on in the Green Party as, res- as regards election expenses or are you mercifully clear of this? I was actually one of the lucky 10% to be audited last year on my PRA expenses. So I'm, I'm glad to have come through that process. A plus? Uh, yeah, I, th- I think I think everything's okay and everything is as it should be. How deep a dive is the audit? What did they go through? What did they ask you for? Oh, what did f- you have to produce? It's a full account of your expenses that were paid for the 2021 year. So Receipts, the lot? Receipts, yeah. every... Yeah, if I bought a, bot- bought a bottle of water to put into the office, that would have to be received. A sweeping, I have a sweeping brush on it uh, because right. we bought a sweeping brush for the office that had to be uh, I actually had to take a photo of the sweeping brush in the office and which, return which was, which was not used for sweeping things under the carpet No, actually we have laminate in the office oh, uh, easier good. to keep clean So there, back in a bit Welcome back I suppose the only question now is what to wear the Nominees for achievement in film editing are the Banshees of Inna Sharon. Yay! Here are the nominees for achievement in music, original score. The Banshees of Inna Sharon. Yay! And here are the nominees for original screenplay. The Banshees of Inna Sharon. That's going well so Martin far, isn't it? Yes, yeah, Martin McDonough, well done, Martin. Here are the nominees for performance by an actor in a supporting role. Brendan Gleeson in and Banshees of Inna Sharon. Yeah, 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 and, and, and. Barry Keoghan. Yay! He got his name sort of right. Here are the nominees for performance by an actress in a supporting role. Kerry Condon. Yay! Achievement in directing, and the nominees are Martin McDonough, The Banshees of Inishera. Here are the nominees for performance by an actor in a leading role. Colin Farrell in The Banshees of Inishera. And, and, and. Paul Messel. Yeah, come on, come there, come on, come there, yes. Here are the 10 nominees for Best Motion Picture of the Year The Banshees of Inishera. Oh. Graham Broadbent, Pete Chermine, and Martin McDonough. We're not producers. finished yet, we're not finished yet. Now, it's with great pleasure that I get to announce this year's nominees for Best Live Action Short Film. An Irish Goodbye. Yo, that's amazing. I just watched it today. And probably the most special announcement of the day. Here are the nominees for Best International Feature Film. The Quiet Girl. Yeah! Back in the net! 14. Count them. 14 Oscar nominations for the Irish. And the cast and crew of On Colleen Coon had gathered in Rathmines in Dublin for a half rap party, half nomination watch. There for the Darcy, Sinead Niulachon.
I'm here in the Stella Cinema at the moment and it is quiet. We're talking about on Colleen Kewin, on Pigdurlan Hewin and so because it is quite quiet. But it wasn't at about quarter to two Irish time, I reckon. I think you might have a clip of uh, the crowd cheering. All quiet to the Western Front, Germany. Argentina, 1985, Argentina. Close, Belgium. Poland. And the quiet <laughs> And it went on. And on. And on. <laughs> and on. And why not? I tell you, well deserved. And she got hold of writer and director Colin Barade. Cohorticus. Caribbean Longest, right? <laughs> Dukratia, unbelievable, incredible stuff. I mean, it, you mentioned like all the big sporting occasions. Like this is, I lived through Italia 90. I remember I was like eight at the time and this was the closest experience to like that David O'Leary final penalty <laughs> kick, you know, waiting, just waiting to see. Because um, they really, we were the last one. They, yes. were, they were called out alphabetically. So oh. we kind of had a feeling if we were going to be called out, we'd probably be last. So it was really tense, like coming towards the end there. It was crazy. You needed George Hamilton saying, a nation holds its breath. <laughs> Very exciting. And Ray was hitting the phones and hoovering up all the guests. Not least, Dervla Meskel, mother of Paul, Oscar nominated for his role in After Sun. Could she sit and watch the nominations? She could not. So who was there and how were you watching it and, and what happened? Um, I don't, okay, I'm really, I don't watch them. Because oh, no, right. I find way too stressful. So I was folding washing, literally. <laughs> Um, and Paul was obviously at work um, and obviously Nell is in London and Dunnick is in New York so he's only just up so yeah he was in work in New York I think isn't it half to, oh, I don't know what time it is it's in five, New York they're five they? hours yeah they're five hours yeah so us, he yeah. was so it's I just wait for the WhatsApp right. and that's what we did we had this magic WhatsApp and shocked faces and crying eyes and yeah wow Wow, was, wow. Wow, wow, wow is yes. a bit ridiculous, but that is how it felt. I didn't know this. I probably always presumed that people knew before it got mm. announced. Nobody knows. No. So it is just this nerve-wracking five hours of once you wake up of waiting. It's crazy. Sick, sick emojis going through the family WhatsApp. Yeah. My tummy, everything, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> walking the canal this morning trying to magic just I'm here this is fine this is normal this is a normal day this is, this is what we do what we do and she was extremely proud all I know is that it's wonderful to have those family I mean everybody who has children away family WhatsApp is yes. just the business and when you do that video con everybody can be on it yeah it, you know, it, you don't actually care what the news is going to be because you just want to see their faces. Yeah. And for me, to see his face oh. and see him so shocked and so joyous and so grateful. Um, I'm very grateful. I'm going to get emotional. Very grateful. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. No, no, but it, it is. It's emotional. It is. It's, yeah. you're like, there's, 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 you must be so proud. Like, it's... I'm, all... I'm very, very proud. But I think people who have children doing anything and it doesn't matter if they're children or the people you love you move mountains for them because you want them to achieve and um in, in whatever they're doing accountancy whatever it is you just want them to be as happy as they can be mm. and like paul at half seven tonight will go on stage and be stanley and 
the love of his life is theatre and he'll just come to life and be on stage tonight. And yeah. so, you know, get on with your job. He might have a little bit of a pep in, he might have a little bit of a pep in his step, <laughs> do you think? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, very lovely. And the hits just kept on coming. Another nomination for short film An Irish Goodbye directed and written by Tom Berkeley and Ross White. Ross, will you tell people uh, about uh, Turlock and Lorcan? Yeah, of course. So uh, the film follows these two estranged brothers, uh, Turlock and Lorcan, uh, who are sort of reunited on their old family farm after the death of their mum. Uh, and they have this sort of fractious relationship and they're sort of dealing with the grief and all of the aftermath of that when they, um, they find their mum's unfulfilled bucket list. And Lorcan, uh, Turley's younger brother, who has Down syndrome, uh, refuses to sort of leave the, the farm and go into a care arrangement until they've completed every single wish on their mum's list. And they're played brilliantly by uh, Seamus O'Hara plays Turlock and James Martin uh, plays Lorcan. Yeah, you're right, played brilliantly. And then Ray decided to continue the whole Italian 90 and put him under pressure. I'm not saying that this is going to happen to you, but it's, it's a good omen because close on 20 years ago, uh, Martin McDonough won an Oscar for in the best short for Six Shooter. So, so, yeah. so I'll be talking to you again in, in, in 20 years' time. <laughs> if it goes half as well as that, we'll be happy, happy shit. Uh, don't forget us, Tom and Ross. You know, take the call, take the call. And, and listen, congratulations on an Always a pro, lining up those calls. But after all that, we'd almost be taking the Banshees for granted. How soon we forget. But then Pat Short joined Ray. He is John Joe Devine, the publican on the island. What a day! Um, listen, it's amazing. Uh, where were you in the car? Were you? Were you? Where were I you watching in, them? I had to pick up a van in Sligo this morning. <laughs> 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 the job goes on, Ray, for the production company and the theatre company in Limerick. I had to pick up the van because the other one broke down at the weekend. So <laughs> I was screaming my head off coming down the N17. <laughs> <laughs> That's showbiz, baby. The countdown begins March 13th. And if 14 has been this week's auspicious number, 16, on the other hand, bit of a whoopsie. The All-Ireland Senior Club football final. Kilmacud Croaks defeated Glen from Derry by two points. But it emerged afterwards that they had 16 men on the field. This is bad, we are told. Glen has lodged a complaint. It is now with the Central Competitions Control Committee which is where our knowledge of this matter ends. Luckily, Marty Morrissey is on hand. Now the ball, to use the analogy, mm. has been kicked to Croke Park uh, and the GA in, in, in turn has forwarded the Glen objection to Kilmercote Croaks. And now follows a rather complicated process, at least complicated for me because I'm learning about it. Um, Kilmercote Croaks now have the right to counter-object and they have up to three days to do so. And the deadline is 11 a.m. on Saturday morning. Uh, there are three options open to Kilmercote Croaks. They can choose at any time to inform the CCCC, that's the Competitions Control uh, Committee of Croke Park, that they won't be counter-objecting, and a hearing can be, can be organised by the CCCC. If there's no objection, they can, uh, the CCCC can uh, schedule a hearing on the matter. The third option available to Croke's is to submit a written admission that they had 16, 17 players on the field, as alleged by the objection by Glenn. This would mean no hearing, and the CCC can uh, make a decision. Um, now, I understand that the 
Competition, Central Competition Controls Committee of the GA would like to hold a hearing if that's what's required within 24 hours of any Kilmacud-Croke's response. Now, when all that is over, uh, the CCC make a decision, for instance, whatever that decision is, and there are three options. Forfeiture of the game uh, from Kilmacud-Croke's, um, a replay, or a fine. And once the CCCC make a decision, the, the two clubs, Glen and Kilmacud-Croke's, are then allowed three days, three more days, oh for an appeal against their decision. So if you're still with me... Uh... <laughs> it's just about Marty, and you've been as clear as you possibly could be, but you're right, it is complicated, isn't it? It is complicated. Now, if there is a replay, the, the word... like. Just taking a little break here for some half-time orange segments. But it could be as early as the 4th or 5th of February, or the latest... Uh, oh no, they're trying to coordinate their diaries. The 11th of February is not on, so it won't okay. be held that weekend. Okay. So there you go. So you're up to speed, <laughs> and if you're still with me, fair play to you. Well, I am, and I feel very proud of myself, but really I'm more proud of you for explaining it so well. <laughs> oh, I think we all need a little lie-down after that. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Tradfest and Arena were out and about. Joining Sean, singer and rapper, Matt O. On the Reach is a poem I specifically written for Tradfest and it's um, hip-hop beats with traditional Irish influence. And I wrote about kind of my experience as a modern Gwilgor, someone who picked Irish up later in their life and then it became such a massive part of my cultural identity that I got, I kind of, it's like a shared mutual frustration amongst young Gwilgori that we almost didn't have this. We almost didn't have this big part of our identity and big part of our culture and it is, it does cause kind of an angst, especially when it's your second language um, and it could have been your first, so that's what it's about. Right, so Anorish is a way of, is it a way of reclaiming the language? Is that kind of what you're at here? Somewhat, yeah, yeah, exactly. Mastu, not Jasu. Oh, what a bee, that's Matsu. An Irish vernacular, that's spectacular. Getting fed like a fat you. Ah, ni hei shin wan, it's peace. Ni hei shin koma, it's me. Oh, God, you've got content in me. Ah, ni viam an rovinic, urinta. I'm just a cynic, competitive, young, the old, and yet it's repetitive. Ta on my chest that says Elu. A hole on my chest goes straight through. A reminder to me that I ain't you. Remind me why I don't hate you. So chat to me, you're modding the watching. I'm thinking about all of the fruits that I've gotten And thinking about all of the ones that went rotten No messing, no cotton, I'm on it, I'm in it Proud of myself every time that I spin And our denim is jarmin' the clergy We used to have limits Formage railish on reeves, railish on tinnish But that's not something they talk about Don't puff out your chest and just walk about This isn't the path that we're walking out Through bushes and hedges, my love and my free And I'm shouting out pledges to maintain on To remain on Maritzerter, Nivaya Lehederishon Matto and on Arish From Arena down at Tradfest. On Liveline this week, an unusual subject. This is how it started. Cars, mixed grain, crisp breads. That was the very particular food Rachel's son would eat and she needed to get them because her son would eat little else. He has something called Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, known as ARFID, which meant that only certain foods were eaten, with texture and shape often key. For breakfast, 
he has the, the car's crackers that we mentioned. Um, he would then eat um, Pringles after that. Now, you know, I don't necessarily love that my child is eating Pringles for breakfast, but the experts have explained that for him, it's less important what he's eating and more important that he's getting sufficient calories. Okay. So, and, and they have explained that Pringles is a high-calorie food that is okay. perfect for him. And okay. he, sh show, he showed an interest in it, an ability to tolerate it. So, you know, they said, go for it. So um, that would be his breakfast, crackers and then Pringles. Morn uh, the mid-morning snack would be crackers and Pringles. Lunch would be crackers and Pringles. You're getting uh, the theme here, I, I imagine. Um, his afternoon snack would be crackers and Pringles. And then at 5 o'clock each evening, we give him a, a multivitamin jelly mm -hmm. just to try and ensure that he is getting some of the, the nutrients he needs. Um, and that's, he, he has two Kinder bars at that point as well, followed by the porridge. And then with the family dinner, he would have crackers and Pringles. So that is the sum total of what he eats every single day. And it turned out, despite what she had thought when she phoned in, Rachel was not alone. Jerry, good afternoon. How you doing? Yeah. Just listen to that lady. We have the same with our child, but he does Jacob's cream crackers. Okay. He's nine now, and he's on a, on a Jacob's cream cracker diet for seven years now. And what do you mean, Jerry, a Jacob's cream cracker? That's, that's what he eats, Jacob's cream crackers. Aldi butter. It has to be Aldi butter. It has to be Jacob's cream crackers and nothing else. He must and eat something else. It's a, he's autistic and that's, yeah. that's his diet. Yeah, yeah, the only problem is when you open a packet of Jacob's now, 90% of the time, half of them are cracked or broken and an autistic child won't take a cracker or broken cracker. No, we're the same. Wow. Yeah. Wow. You know? And Jerry, so you can throw, I, you can, throw it half the pack every day. Can he can he eat enough cream crackers a day to keep him going? Well, with, with Aldi the, butter, the therapists say he, he's not suffering from it yet. Wow! So, and how many packets? I, well, I bought ten this morning, and I'll probably buy six or seven tomorrow. It's it's, it's, it's that's that's his diet. He's talking to me here. I'm collecting from school, so ah, I have to good, go. Good. And on it went. And as you'll hear, any notion of picky eating was put straight to bed. And although often a feature of autism, it can affect anyone. Here are just some of the callers to Liveline this week. Charlie's, um, he has ASD, because we only uh, recently got diagnosed with, with having aphids. My wife, through research, found a clinic in Birmingham, and we had a Zoom consultation with them last week, and it was through them that they uh, told us about Arfitz. Mm. He's seven now. At the moment, he will eat um, rice cakes from Tesco's. And on, he, only from Tesco? Yeah. He used to eat hunky dories and then last week, we bought hunky dories and for whatever reason, they're slightly harder in the packet. Uh, um, so he's lost his trust of hunky dories at the moment, so they're out. Mm. He's uh, moved on to Pringles. So it's, okay. it's, it's rice cakes and Pringles. And maybe if we're lucky, he might eat a toaster waffle. If he sees his sister having a toaster waffle, he might okay. decide to have one of them. But uh, apart from that, it's, it's, it's very restricted. It's mostly crunchy, yeah. carbohydrate-type foods. Very short-lasting, uh, like energy-wise, Charlie would have energy sports because he's getting all the sugar from them foods, and then he'll have an energy crash where he'll just want to sit on the sofa and do nothing. Tom, it's your son who's seven. Yes, my son Daniel is autistic. He's non-verbal. 
ADHDs, um, and, and it seems to be very prevalent within the autistic community that children, mm-hmm. you know, suffer from this particular disorder. Our son will only eat. We've lost the food in the last couple of weeks. Um, okay. Where we say lose the food, we mean that where he previously ate something, he no longer will touch it. Okay. So we're now down to toast in the morning. We're down to Dunstores sausage rolls that they specialise in their delicatessen. Every lunch he gets two of them. And we're now down to chicken goujons, which are the gluten-free chicken goujons that Dunstore stock. So that's what that's where we are. We're down to three foods. Okay. We've all, uh, and and milk. Thankfully, he drinks milk, okay. so we can put our supplements in there. Um, Siobhan, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. I just rang in after listening to that lady. Yeah. Um, I have a son who has autism, and he is not diagnosed with ARFID, but does have ARFID. Um, it's very hard to get an ARFID diagnosis. It's very hard to get any help um, with it. And recently, my son has been fitted with a PEG tube, oh, which gosh. is actually a tube in his stomach and he gets yeah. fed four times a day through that because his weight had dropped so much due to losing what's classed as safe food to him. Um, and can I ask you what he was? What was he eating? Um, toast, crackers, yeah. dry kind of carbohydrate type foods really, very plain, very the same all the time. It has to be consistent. Um, yeah. If it's if it's toast, it can't be overdone. Yeah. Um. It's very it's very tough that way. It has to be the same across the board, same brands, same, same problems as your same as your shape. previous caller. Yeah. 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 Um. His BMI dropped so low, um, that I had to fight to get that too. But again, um, that was me taking that fight on board. No yeah. one reached out to to say, you know, this is what we should do. This is there was no plan of action. His his latest dietitian, we've been through six of them, and his latest dietitian actually said to me at my last appointment, "You actually know more about this than I do." And I said, "What's the plan going forward?" And she said, hmm. "There isn't one." From Liveline. On Munigo's Wild, the blue whale, and not just any old whale. Richard Sabin is the curator of mammals at Britain's Natural History Museum in London. Emphasis for a reason. The whale's name is Hope, and Hope is Irish. Hope is the Wexford whale. Back in March, 25th of March, 1891, she appeared in the waters of Wexford Harbour. She was seen swimming against the current, very, very um, heavy waters, and she beached herself on a sandbank called Swanton's Bank, which I believe has gone now. But she hit this sandbank and became stuck fast. Now, over at Rosslare, there was a, a lifeboat station, and one of the young lifeboat pilots, a chap named Ned Wickham, saw this blue whale, had mm-hmm. never seen anything like it. And he tried to approach the animal, but of course, on that day, the weather was very bad. And the other thing, of course, this young female blue whale was very strong at that point, so it was very dangerous to try and approach her. So, Ned went back to Fort Rosslare. He alerted his colleagues and they watched the whale for the next day. On the second day, on the 26th of March, they were able to approach the whale. Now, Ned Wickham was very, very distressed, we believe, by the struggles of the animal. By the second day, of course, she was a lot weaker. She was starting to be crushed by her own weight Mm. out of the water. That's what happens with these large whales. And so, partly out of compassion, partly out of probably a a financial realisation that there was going to be money in the remains of this whale, Ned Wickham had fashioned a homemade harpoon and they managed to climb onto the body of the whale and Ned placed the harpoon under the left flipper 
of the animal and we think he may have struck the heart because the description that came from Ned and the people who were watching at the time was that the sea ran red with the animal's blood. Ah, poor dead at hope. But there was money involved, quite a lot of money, and the carcass belonged to the Crown. The British took claim of the animal under the fish's royal prerogative of 1324. My goodness. Absolutely, yeah. So <laughs> the Crown um, became the owner of the carcass and instructed the local receiver of wreck in Wexford to sell the carcass to raise money for the Treasury. So there was actually an auction, believe it or not, and the chairman of the Wexford Harbour Board, a man called William Armstrong, he bid in the auction and he actually purchased the carcass of the blue whale for £111. Enter the Natural History Museum in London, who wanted this whale quite badly. Once the negotiations had started between William Armstrong, who bought it for £111 with the museum, he actually sold it to the museum for £250, so he more than doubled his cash. (laughs) Some of the money went to Ned Wickham and his colleagues, and of course um, that would have been quite a sum at the time. I think it was £50 they received. Local people took the carcass apart. Um, The skeleton actually arrived in its totality by the end of the year in 1891, and it was officially registered by this museum in March of 1892, so it took about a year end-to-end for it So to the arrive. Natural History Museum bought the skeleton mm-hmm. and the locals got the benefit of the oil and the meat? William Armstrong, we think, got the benefit of the oil. Oh, the I oil, see. Um, so was, he, he really made a killing. Oh, he did. He, he absolutely did. Big business indeed, and now hope proudly hangs in the Natural History Museum in London. Hence Derek asking this. Any chance you'd give it back to us? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's staying where it is for at least the next 40 years. <laughs> From Mooney Goes Wild, all of that bringing us to this. The Labour TD, Sean Sherlock, once is calling for the return of a Cork artefact, which is being held in the Great Museum, of course, the V&A. It's the 16th century Mount Keefe chalice. It was bought in 1929 by officials at the V&A for £400 from an heiress living in Cork. And the history of how the object came to be in her family's ownership has been discovered as murky at best, but it's likely the chalice was looted from a church by British forces during the... up. Now I'm getting angry. By the upheaval of the Cromwellian conquest of Ireland in the mid-17th century. Give us back our... Now I want the chalice back. Now I'm going over to London myself, on the ferry, to get it back and just walk in and take it. I don't care about the alarms and everything. I'm just... I'll have that back, thanks. Why? You, you sacked and you pillaged and you wrecked everything, so we just want our stuff back. Thanks. I want to see what it looks like now. Oh, here it is. It's beautiful. I want it back. I want to drink wine from it and, and share it with our friends. It's like, it's essentially, if children are listening this morning, you know when you kick your ball over the garden, just, the neighbour doesn't own the ball anymore. You just ring the bell and ask for the ball back. So I'm going to go to the V&A, ring the bell and ask for the chalice back. Take that, you colonial robbers. And he might just get it because this week the Tuberty was on a happy roll, living his best life. Work hard, play hard and pour me another rosé. And he wasn't alone here in Montrose. Claire Byrne, bossing it. Yes, I win. But for Ray, in possibly a post-Oscar slump, this question. Is it still January? Oh, diddums. Hang in there. Only a few more days. Well, that is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week. You can get it if you really
succeed at last. 